Okay, Matthew thirteen thirty-one through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has uh, sorry, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and take nests in its branches. He told them another parable: the kingdom of heaven is like heaven leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. This is the word of the Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it changes us. We thank you that it makes us new. Lord, I pray now that you would just equip me to be able to speak it um, as you intended, Lord, that I would not try to view it through my own lenses, Lord God, but I would speak it directly and authoritatively as coming from you, Lord God. God, that you would take all of my weakness, Lord God, and, and uh, shine through it and shine in spite of it, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have been doing a series, as you know, um, uh, where we've been um, kind of comparing different concepts in Christianity. Uh, most of the concepts you might have had at least a cursory knowledge of, but I tried to really take a couple each week and compare them. This is the last week we're going to do that. Um, I've really enjoyed doing it. Uh, in this series, we've, we've analyzed justification and sanctification. And then in the second week, we, we talked about what it means to assume salvation just based on some religious duty or some uh, ceremony or some rote. And, and we compared that with what it means to be assured of our salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we also, uh, last week, we talked about um, how we are, as believers, we are in union with Christ that, that we're, we're wedded together, that we're bound together, and that because of that, there should be a resulting communion with Christ, that there should be fellowship with Christ, there should be a, 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 a deep and personal intimacy with Christ. So today what I want to do is we're going to conclude this series by looking at um, the, the simple message of salvation, that most of you, even from early ages, from young ages, could be able to recite what I mean when I say that, the simple message of salvation. But I want to compare it and shine it against the backdrop of Jesus' often repeated message, his proclamation of the kingdom of God. And the reason I want to do that is because many people, no matter how many years they're Christians, they never look at the kingdom of God as bigger than God's saving work. And I hope that this morning you will be challenged to do that, to, to look at it as beyond and larger uh, than what you may have thought of, the, the limitations, the boundaries that you've put on it, and see it as bigger. I've repeatedly over this series, and it kind of became the theme, I didn't intend that starting out, but it kind of became the theme, but um, we, I, I kind of have repeatedly pointed out on this series our tendency to reduce the gospel to what I've called the lowest common denominator. And, and when I say the lowest common denominator, um, what I mean is that Christianity boils down for most of us to a single fact and a single response. What is the fact? The fact that our Christianity boils down to. It's this, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, allowing us to be saved. And the required response 
is to believe that that is true. And that allows us, when we believe that's true, to, uh, to uh, you know, be conformed to God by the Holy Spirit. And this constitute that single fact and that single uh, uh, rea- response to that fact constitutes for most of us what I'll call Christianity 101. And so don't worry, this is not some new doctrine. I'm not going to try to dissuade you from believing that. In fact, I hope you do believe that. I hope you believe in Christ's saving personal work for you. And I don't want to remotely suggest that you shouldn't fully embrace that truth. I hope you have. There are some of you here who have not. And I would love to spend the rest of the morning convincing you that you should do that. See, it's central that that these facts remain a, a very vital part of our message week in and week out, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's important that we remember that. And it's only important that we remember that as long as we also remember that the Bible also says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, making it very, very personal. However, what I want you to see is not that the gospel is less than that, but that the gospel is infinitely, infinitely more than that. While saving lost people is a vital part of the total message, it is just that, a part. A part of a larger, even more satisfying, even more assuring truth about who Christ Jesus is and who we are in relation to Him. The gospel, listen to me, I don't care how long you've been saved, I don't care how many theological degrees you have, the gospel is bigger than you've ever imagined. It's bigger, it's more explosive, it's more life-changing than you have ever considered. And this idea of kingdom, when I talk about the kingdom of God, Jesus used two terms, they basically mean the same thing, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And when we talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about something that is more than just religion. And, and the, the, the church that, that, that represents that kingdom is more than just another equal part of society, like the school or the government or the business. It is more than just personal devotion. The kingdom, when we talk about the kingdom, it is more than all of that. The kingdom implies, this is not rocket science, but the kingdom implies that there is a ruling king. And kingship, the way it was understood when the Bible was written, implies absolute authority. In Psalm chapter 2, it's this beautiful prophetic psalm pointing forward to Jesus. And, and God warns the entire world. He warns them. This is not a, a, a kind, tender invitation. It's a warning. He warns the entire world to reverence the king that he's installed on his holy hill. That king, as we know now, is Jesus. And listen to the severity of God's words. He says in Psalms 2.11, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And again, I've said this probably each of these three previous weeks. This flies right in the face, smack in the face of American Christianity. Because what we've done in American Christianity is we've made it so democratic. It reflects our politics and not the scripture. Come on, help me out here. 
how is that so? How does that, how does the, the, the gospel we preach reflect our politics and not our scriptures? Well, in this, in, in our version of Christianity, we decide to join up with God. We cast our vote for Him. And, and, and because of that, now we're not unreasonable. We, we might make some alterations in our life, but never enough to be considered a fanatic in polite company. We don't do, we don't go overboard. We just kind of, you know, we might show up to church two or three times a month and, and, you know, maybe give a little bit of money here, but, but we're not really, we haven't really embraced the idea of what it means to be subject to a king. We are clearly remaining in control of the arrangement. But kingdom, the idea of kingdom does not give you any such options. If Jesus is king, he is the absolute king. Jesus arrived. You might think, well, are you just kind of making this stuff up? No, not at all. Jesus arrived when he showed up on the scene. I love this passage in Mark. I've quoted it a thousand times from this platform probably. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, he pointed to a newly arrived kingdom. Not a religion, not a religious system, not a theological viewpoint. He, he pointed to a newly arrived kingdom. Listen to his words. Jesus came into Galilee, Mark 1.14. He came into Galilee. This is the very beginning of his ministry, proclaiming the gospel of God. So what's he doing here? He's tying gospel to kingdom. He's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, listen to these words, the time is fulfilled. Wait, I, I thought that wouldn't happen until the book of Revelation, the scary, spooky stuff happened. Oh no. Jesus steps foot into his ministry, his public ministry that will culminate in his death and resurrection. And he says these words, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it's here right now. Surprise, you're looking at it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And there's a response. We talked about that earlier. Repent and believe the gospel. And what is that gospel tied to? It's tied to a kingdom. Not a religion, not a viewpoint, it's tied to, to a kingdom. And he didn't say, I want you to get this because it's so ingrained into us as Americans. He did not say, if my message appeals to you, come to me and be saved. He didn't say that. This was not an invitation. It was a command and a final one at that. This was a command. It was an ultimatum. Jesus is saying, let me give you my interpretation of the verse we just read. He is saying, time is up. The king and his kingdom have appeared. Change everything. Surrender anything that I demand in response to my arrival. And this is not just the words of Jesus. It's the consistent message of the gospel all the way through the New Testament. But several years later, we find Paul on a hill in Athens, and he's talking to pagan Greeks. And he says, he's describing how God has related to them in, in times past, and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. What's he talking about? He says that their, their people, their races, have existed in, in paganism and idolatry for generations. But Jesus, God, knowing he was sending Jesus as an answer to that, often just overlooked their wickedness in that moment. And he said, but listen, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, 
Pay careful attention to that. But now, the rules of the game are changing. But now, He commands all people everywhere, red and yellow, black and white, no matter what uh, uh, nation of the world they're from, He commands all people everywhere to, to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who He has appointed. Who is that man? His chosen King Jesus. And of this, He's given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now what are we saying here? What is Paul, what is Jesus saying when we take their messages together? He is saying that we should take caution in this pluralistic society if we think too much of Jesus as an option. If we think too much of Jesus as one of many possible religious paths, these words say something clearly different. This is a message to the whole world. Whether you are a CEO in the highest penthouse suite, or you are a a naked tribesman running around somewhere in South America, this message is for you. It's to the whole world. Jesus' kingdom announcement came to the Jews, the prototype of the people of God for all time. And what did he say? Repent and believe. The king is here. And and Paul's message, on the other hand, came to pagans who had gathered at the Areopagus to hear new philosophies and have their ears tickled. And what does Paul say to them? Repent and believe in the king and his kingdom. Both were commanded to repent and submit to the one true king. And if you understand scripture in the Bible, these two categories of people, Jew and Gentile, mean everybody. Understanding Jesus as king helps us to realize that all of humanity is left with only two options. Sometimes people ask you, what religion are you? And they mean that you're going to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Mormon, I'm a you know, Buddhist, whatever. But that's not the way that God's economy of belief works. We are all left with only two options. And these are our options. We can either become the subject of the king through repentance and submission to his will, or we can be subjected to him unwillingly through judgment. But eventually, Scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is King, that He is boss, and they will do so to the glory of God the Father. Those who hear His call, and I hope that you are among those who have heard His call, those who hear His call, and become his subject willingly on bended knee through repentance, will find quickly that Jesus the King is kind. And that he is gracious. And that he is patient. And that he is always filled with steadfast love. And that he helps the weak. And that he guides the lost. And that he rescues the perishing. And he even forgives even the most sinful among us. But make no mistake about it. Those who were forcefully subjected to him will find him nothing less than fierce and terrifying. 
There will be no pale-faced, emaciated Jesus hanging on a crucifix looking at them on the last day. He will strike more terror in their hearts than any demon in hell would ever have the capability to do. Because now is the day of their judgment by the most holy, infinitely holy being in all of the universe. None can compare to him. They'll find him fierce and they'll find him terrifying. And the opportunity to receive any benefit from his grace that they have spurned is gone. It's vanished like a mist. The book of Hebrews lays this out in terrifying language for us. The, 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 the writer of Hebrews is wrapping up his statements about who Jesus was to the Jewish people. And he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of just two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now, now take that in. Don't rush past it. He's saying that those who broke Moses' law over and over in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, you would see these words, and let that one be stoned outside the camp. Let them be put to death for violating the law that God handed down through Moses. And, and God is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying all the way through the book of Hebrews that God has, has replaced that covenant with a much better one. And so he's saying if those who disregarded Moses' covenant flippantly were, were sentenced to death, how much more will deserving of punishment would do you think will be the, will be deserved by those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This is the most terrifying scripture, I think, in the entire Bible. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And real quickly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. It's not my purpose. But if you have not willingly bent your knee in repentance and submission to God. Now is the time. Today is the day. His grace is extended. His mercy is extended. There's no reason except your own stubborn heart and unbelief that you should have to face a day like that. Okay, I'm done with that. Because I want you to know... While all of those things about the absolute rulership and sovereignty of Jesus as king, are so very important. The idea of kingdom is more than acknowledging Jesus' lordship and being saved. I said that at the beginning. Or ignoring it and being judged. See, the promise of the kingdom, this is where it gets really beautiful. The promise of the kingdom is about the, redemption, the redemption rather of not just a remnant who will cling to his grace, but the restoration of the entire creation that has been the victim of depravity and decay. It's all going to be made new. Do you care this morning? Even in red state Texas, do you care about the environment? Do you care about, you know, pollution and destruction and, and depletion of resources and things like that? Do you care about all that? 
I want to tell you something. If you care about the environment, you should be really encouraged by the coming kingdom. Because the Bible teaches in several places that God did not come just to save your souls, but to save his entire creation. The whole nine yards. Paul, John, the Apostle John's looking forward to the future, and he sees this prophetically. He says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. See, Romans even tells us that the creation as we have it groans. That's the word it uses, it groans. And it's waiting for the day when, uh, when, when all of God's plan is complete and newness and cleanness and recreation will replace death and decay and pollution and corruption and extinction and brokenness. People, you see it all the time on the news. People spend tons of money and political energy trying to fix environmental problems that the fullness of the kingdom will completely eradicate forever. Forever. But it gets better. It does not just have a creational element, but it also has a human element. Are you sick and tired and weary and exhausted of the kind of injustice like we saw last week in Minneapolis. Are you tired of it? How about war? Are you sick of seeing bodies of human beings piled up in wars waged by selfish despots? Guess what? Kingdom has an answer for it. In Psalms 46, 9, the psalmist describes the king of this kingdom. It says he makes wars cease to the end of the earth he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the chariots with fire oh and about that injustice when isaiah was prophesying about the 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 coming messiah jesus he said behold my servant that's jesus whom i uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights listen to this i've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations See, Christ the King is going to balance every scale. He is going to punish every wrong. He's going to call in every debt that is owed. No attorneys in that day will find loopholes against King Jesus. No crooks will get off scot-free. No one's going to be able to beg their way out. Mercy and grace now available to you in this life are the only refuge from the, from the justice of God. Sin, I've told you this over and over, sin is never overlooked. It's either atoned for by Christ's death on the cross or it will be judged in the, in the day, by the king in the great day. But no one is getting away with anything. All of our wickedness will either be placed on Jesus or we will bear it ourselves for all eternity. But not only does it have a a creational and human element, this coming of the kingdom, did you know that it has an individual element as well? I'm talking about a benefit for you. The kingdom has a benefit for you. Are you tired of tears rolling down your cheeks? Are you wearied of one more heartbreak? Are you weighed down at times by discouragement, by depression and by grief? 
Well, good news. Kingdom changes everything. John, once again, looking forward, says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away when the king makes everything new. Can you even imagine it? Let me answer for you. No, you can't. Your life has been attended with so much grief and pain and heartache and depression and sadness. You cannot imagine an environment, a world where God is going to be with one decree, with one tender touch of his hand, wiping all of that away forever and ever. I can hear you. I can feel you. You get that kind of sense after you've been preaching for so long. But I I know you're protesting right now. You're saying, well, big whoop. All these things are in the sweet by and by, but if you haven't noticed, Mark, I live in the sour here and now. And, and our think, I think that all the time too. But our thinking that way shows the problem with our limiting the scope of the gospel, imagining that Jesus' work on the cross was just about forgiveness of sin and giving us the hope of escaping to heaven when we die. The kingdom, I want you to hear this, listen to me present day 2020 Christians, the kingdom, the kingdom right now has already begun to transform the landscape of the present. Now, I get a sense that very few of of you believe that. I'm not accusing you, I'm just, I know the world you live in. Are you kidding me? Man's killed in Minneapolis, and there's abortion, and there's there's you know war, and there's crime, and 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 you're telling me the kingdom is making an impact in this world right now, and I'm telling you absolutely it is. See, the idea of the kingdom is unrealized. It is a fairy tale until it includes all of creation in all of time, past, present, and future. It's just a fairy tale. The kingdom has to make an impact today in this earth, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your family, and yes, in yourself. It has to make an impact for it to be real. Jesus told us, do you remember this? He gave us an example prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And he told us in that prayer to pray to our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come. Now, you may never have considered this, but when did you imagine that Jesus was intending for the kingdom to come? Lord, I pray that all those scary things in the book of Revelation would happen so your kingdom can come. No. Jesus was telling us to pray, let your kingdom come so it could come right now. When you pray. Okay, so we pray that the kingdom comes. I can do that till I'm blue in the face. How will I know that the kingdom has come? Well, let me finish Jesus' statement for you. He said, pray to the Father, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was the message. See, the primary purpose, I'm going to blow your mind here, the, the primary purpose of prayer is not so Jesus can touch your boo-boos. That is not the primary purpose of prayer. 
The primary purpose of prayer, the reason that we as the body have been given this incredible responsibility and privilege of prayer is so that we can plead for God's reign as king to become apparent now in our realms of ministry, service, and influence. This means our work. This means our neighborhood. This means our family. This means our private unseen lives. It's not about seeing our will accomplished. Jesus, give me this, 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 and this. It's about Jesus. I do not see evidence of your reign right here. Bring your kingdom right here. Blow this place up, Lord, with your kingdom. It's not about your private will being accomplished, but your will becoming God's will and His reign being manifest in the places where He has put you. So my question is, I want this to get personal, guys. Is the will of God being done in the place where you work? If not, you must Pray that His kingdom come. Is God's will being done in the life of your spouse, your child, your your mother, your father, your extended family? Is the will of God being done? If not, you are obligated to pray that His kingdom come. Do you see God's will? Don't try not to laugh out too loud, but do you see God's will controlling affairs in Washington, D.C.? Do you see God's will in the lives of your friends or even in the activities of this church? If not, you must pray that the kingdom come in all of those realms. But don't make any mistake about it. The kingdom doesn't come without a king. When the kingdom shows up, there's a king. Here's the hard part. You ain't him. When the kingdom comes, it comes so another realm can be submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And and the king has promised that a day will come On the last day, when his reign will be fully realized, and no one's going to be crying for the kingdom to come, because it's going to be here, baby, all the way through and through. That day is going to come. But I want you to hear today, in this moment, that that day is only the capstone of what Jesus proclaimed. He declared that his kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is already conquering. It is taking over progressively through the occupation, the occupation forces of other believers. It is taking over. You say, well, how can you prove that? Because you're saved. Because there was a time when there was a realm in darkness and that realm was called Mark Sharp. And guess what? The king came and he conquered this realm. The kingdom is here, folks. The kingdom is moving forward. The kingdom is, 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 is uh, causing light to be broadcast around it. And people are coming to the light. Uh, there's some that won't. But I'm still moving forward with the kingdom. 
I'm going forward with the kingdom and I will not let my unbelief keep me till the last breath from crying out in the places where I see resistance to the kingdom. Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right here, right now. Matthew 13 Uh, Jason read that portion of it for us. It's filled, the whole chapter is filled with short stories that make a point. We call those parables, those short stories that make a point. And they make a point about the nature of the kingdom. Jesus used these parables to explain the nature of the kingdom so we wouldn't be surprised when his rule didn't look like we think it should look. See, the Jews did that really bad. They thought the kingdom was going to come with Jesus marching in on a white stallion and killing all the Romans and making uh, national Israel the the pinnacle of the whole world. Didn't look like he did. So he told stories to to tell how it would look. And he also didn't want us to miss it as it was realized in our midst. So we read two of these stories at the beginning. One of them was about a mustard seed and the other was about leaven. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. A mustard seed is tiny. I have one right here. I literally do. Can you see it? Of course you can. It's, I have one. It's right here. Let me see if I can put it in my hand and you can see it a little bit better. Anybody see that any better? Right there. Or it's going to roll on the floor, but anyway. I have one. Glad I didn't lose it. It's tiny. I'm looking at it right here. I can barely see it. It's You wouldn't even notice it if you weren't looking for it. i got a couple more in my pocket. If I throw them on the carpet, you won't find them after church unless you're looking for them. They're there, though. Tiny. But if you plant this tiny, itty-bitty little seed... Guess what's going to happen? This little itty-bitty seed can grow into a a tree that will grow 8 to 12 feet tall. This itty-bitty tiny little mustard seed. Jesus' point was that when the kingdom is first announced to people who have never heard about it or have never seen it by faith, that it might not make a huge difference. Impression. You know why this place isn't completely full? Because most people you talk about the kingdom of God to don't believe that you know anything that you're talking about. It doesn't make a big impression. It, it kind of, Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. Why is that? Because the message of the kingdom isn't making a huge impression on them. They see it as religious superstition, or, uh, but a day is coming. When the whole earth is going to be filled with the kingdom, it's going to be impossible to ignore. It's going to provide shelter to the, and rest to the weary. We spoke earlier about the purpose of prayer being to call forth God's reign as king in the earth. And it's interesting that when Jesus taught about prayer and faith, he said that if you have faith, like the grain of a mustard seed, You can say to this mountain, now keep in mind, remember, we're making a connection between faith, prayer, and the kingdom of God. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. We're talking about monumental, continental shifting change. 
He says, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the smallest faith exercised by a subject of God's eternal kingdom can accomplish monumental kingdom triumphs in the authority of the king. In the second parable that we read, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid into three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Three measures of dough is about 50 pounds of dough. It makes about bread for about 100 people. I wouldn't know that. I read that. I wasn't baking this week during an experiment to figure out how much bread. 50 pounds, 100, bread for 100 people. But I want you to know, if you've ever done any baking, that just a tiny little pinch of yeast will quickly infect that whole lump of dough. And it will cause the bread to rise. Now, this is important because once that process begins, you can't stop it. If you want unleavened bread and you accidentally forgot that and put the yeast in, guess what? You got to make a whole new batch because you ain't getting that yeast out of there. The chemical process is going to continue until the, the whole lump is leavened. Once the process begins, you can't stop it. But also when the yeast is causing bread to rise, there's no rapid effect that's immediately noticeable. You don't say, and go, like that. It takes time. There's, there's, there, it, it, it moves slowly. A small loaf of bread can take 45 minutes or more to rise. Jesus is saying that once the lump of the world, listen to this carefully, once the lump of the world is infected with the leaven of the kingdom, as it was at his arrival, a, transfer, a transformation rather, at times barely noticeable, begins. Once the leaven hits the lump, transformation's happening. And you can't stop it. It's utterly unstoppable. Dudley Hall uses two words that I've stolen from him for years. He says that the kingdom is always advancing, undetected, and undeterred. People are looking at this lump of the world and they say, man, nothing's happening. Oh, something's happening. The kingdom is moving through the lump. It's moving unstoppably and undetectably at times, but it's moving. It's happening. What confidence... If you believe that, some of you do, some of you don't, I can't help that. But if you believe that, what confidence should that knowledge give us? That this mission that we've been given as agents, as subjects of the kingdom of God, cannot fail. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? This leaven's already already in the lump. This lump's infected, baby. There is, a, there is a chemical process that is happening in the lump that cannot be extracted. It can't fail. Now, it could fail if Jesus fails. It could fail if Jesus has lied to us. But you know what the Bible says? It says Jesus can't fail. It says Jesus can't lie. Christians in America spend a lot of time and energy and emotional you know, the emotion fretting about political and financial and medical and therapeutic solutions to problems that the kingdom addresses for you and I in the here and now. Not just the sweet by and by, but in the here and now. Jesus is not just Savior. He is King 
and He is Lord. He is the absolute ruler over all that He's created. And the fact that Jesus is King means that there is nothing that can separate you from His love. The fact that He is King means that there is no weapon that is formed against you that can prosper. What if I die? Ha! Even death has been robbed of its prey by the kingship of Jesus Christ. Prayer is the way you advance His kingdom and see His will performed on the earth till He comes. And I want to challenge you this week to remember that when you're tempted to think that Christianity is simply a decision you made instead of a kingdom that has come rolling in with a benevolent king who demands your full allegiance. That's the difference between kingdom and the simple message of salvation. Thank God for the simple message of salvation. But as maturing believers, we must embrace the fact that the kingdom of God is a whole lot more. And may your prayers this week be empowered as you remember that. Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you, everything I just preached to you. I want to pray for you before I give the benediction. I want to pray that the kingdom of God will permeate your thinking this week, that you wouldn't just live like a lost person, live like a worldly person because you're saved, but you would live this week as an absolute subject of the kingdom of God, that you would be one of his subjects knee-bent, voice-proclaiming allegiance, and, and, and that your, your priorities will become kingdom priorities. When you go to work and everyone's a stinking jerk, that you wouldn't look at them as stinking jerks. That you would go, wow, Lord, let your kingdom come here. Let your will be done here. When your husband inconsiderately, again, leaves his underwear laying in the middle of the floor... You pray, Lord, let your kingdom come to my husband in that and every other war that you have, in my spouse, in my children, in my neighborhood, and yes, in this world, in our nation. Let me caution you, especially when we talk about big national prayers. Do not dictate to God what his kingdom looks like or what his kingdom should do. He is Lord and you are not vice Lord. This would be a good confession to make, right? Everybody say out loud, I am not vice Lord. Lord. Everyone say, "Jesus Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord alone. Some of you just had a radical transformation of your theology right there. (laughs) Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the people of God. I thank you that every one of them who have truly believed represents a place where your kingdom has taken over, Lord God. Where light devoured darkness. Where love conquered hatred. Where peace squashed war where life killed death, where joy crushed sadness. Lord, we thank you for that. 
Lord, I pray that the kingdom of God would saturate them in their thoughts and in their prayers, Lord God. And I pray that they, those who would dare bend the knee to pray this week would think of that prayer as a whole different uh, idea, Lord, that they would see them not as begging you for tiny little favors, but see themselves as kingdom agents taking over territory and conquering in the name of their king. And so, Father, I, I ask this week, Lord God, that you would draw us all to that mindset. And when we return again on next Sunday, Lord, that we would come fully prepared to embrace uh, you as king, not just as Lord, but as king. And so, God, do your work that only you can do. Take this seed, the seed of the word that's been planted, and let it grow now, Lord God. Let it grow into something that, that matters, not just for a day or a moment, but for a lifetime, Lord God. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would extend your hands in the receiving position. And I could not think of a more appropriate benediction than this when we talk about the kingship of the king. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.